Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. At the beginning of this past week, I had to do some big miles on the tandem to get to Vienna and then onwards to Bratislava. This left me with a set of tired legs, which did mean that I had a great excuse to do some exploring in both Vienna and Bratislava. I did two capitals in two days. Now, when I was in Vienna, I was exploring it solo, and it really gave me a lot of time to think, well, what is this for? Why am I in Vienna, and what am I hoping to get out of it? A better understanding of the city, some insight into Austrian identity, and, and what will take me there? Is it trying a Sasha Torte, or drinking a Melange coffee, or visiting a modern art museum and seeing you know, Viennese artists, will that help me understand the current country better? Or do I need to be talking to people? It's something I was thinking a lot, well, what do I need to do to understand a city or a country? And is this even the right question? I would be really interested in your thoughts on what you try and get out of a city when you visit it. So please do drop a message in the comments. I arrived in Bratislava and I stayed with Jakob, who's a good friend who I first met in Tajikistan when we were both at the University of Central Asia. And I've stayed with him in his flat for the last week and later on we'll hear from Jakob. But he has really helped me see a little bit under the lid of life in Bratislava and Slovakia. On our first night, he took me into the centre and was saying, well, you know, this cafe and this restaurant, they're kind of owned by the local mafiosa. Here are some new developments. Uh, they're some of the priciest apartments in the city. It really gave me a different insight that I wouldn't have gained from just looking at a, what I thought was a pretty cafe and is, but just not the story behind it. I have been really charmed by Bratislava. It's, it's very small and it's covered in cobbles. There are lots of lovely places to hang out, fairy lights outdoors, people quietly drinking and smoking in the evenings. It really feels like a place that in the day you can hang out and chill and just watch the world go by in really pleasant surroundings with a coffee and at night a really great place to chat with friends. For me perhaps the, the highlight or the biggest challenge of the week was being introduced to Domatz which is the homebrew of Slovakia. I had some stuff that was 67% and it was like some red hot roots had just unfurled down my esophagus into my lungs. And it was quite an experience, all in, in the name of culture, of course. It's also been fascinating to explore the countryside around Bratislava. I visited Trenčín and Privjezda. I was expecting that you know, this was formally behind the Iron Curtain for it to be quite Soviet. So I was quite surprised when actually it feels a lot more, in my mind, European. There are still beautiful squares with cobbles. We came across a food festival. There are a ton of castles around, including Bozhnitsa, which is this beautiful fairy tale castle. 
And the only way to top that was to go to some thermal baths down the road. One of the other surprises was in Privyazda, there were two vegan restaurants, which I was not expecting to find. And so very soon I'm going to be packing up my bags and making some more headway, no longer via the Danube and Hungary, but heading back into Austria, across Slovenia, and then heading towards Croatia. Now, this week I haven't had the opportunity to share the tandem with anyone, but Jakob has very kindly shared his flat with me. Jakob, what has it been like to have an interloper in your flat? I certainly really enjoyed having you over here. I <laughs> I have to say that I was so glad to see you after spending some time together with you in Tajikistan, and truth be told, I was not really expecting to see you again. So it was really nice to catch up and uh, have some time to engage in very controversial discussions. What's your favorite discussion been? <laughs> One that I enjoyed was when we were sitting in the cafe in the city center eating some Slavic food and we were discussing political correctness. <laughs> yes, yeah, what is the right thing to say? What can and can't we say? Exactly. How, just how bad have I been? I know I've put my stuff, basically taken over one room of your house and you've been very... One thing that I almost lost my shit about <laughs> is when you try to double dip into the jam. So, I people who double dip, double dipping is a no-go. Luckily, you know, I, I told you off before it happened. You did, you did give me the warning. I'm very glad that we haven't lost our friendship over yeah. that. Uh, Jakob, thanks so much. <laughs> This week, I am talking to Josh Lasky, all the way over in New Hampshire. This is a conversation that I am very intrigued to see where it's going. A little bit about Josh. In a professional sense, he's been working in sustainability for many years. He's been part of the US Green Building Council, and he now works as a strategic communications consultant. And when I asked him, well, what exactly does this mean? It's basically about getting governments, nonprofit organizations, schools to be able to connect with their clients, their audience. So if you're a school and you're trying to work out how on earth do you get the parents to reply to some questionnaire, well, Josh, is your man. So they don't work on flogging products, but actually trying to make a meaningful change, which I think is super cool. Josh is many things beyond this. He's an ultra runner. He has done expeditions on his bike and he's an author, which is going to really bring us on to what we're talking about in today's conversation. And that is your father was diagnosed with Parkinson's. You were the sole carer and you went through quite a journey. So that is what we are going to be really focusing on in today's conversation. And I think so much more is going to come out of it. Josh, thank you so much for joining on the Facing Up podcast. I am thrilled to be with you today, Luke. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. No, thank you. So take us back to mm -hmm. the time when you first got told or realized that something was wrong with your dad, how old were you? What was the situation? Can you set the scene for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm coming to you today from New Hampshire, but I usually live in Washington, D.C. And at the time I was growing up in New Jersey. So I'm kind of an East Coast USA person. But the journey takes place in the beginning in New Jersey. And I grew up in a suburb of New York. And I think I was probably about 13 or 14 years old when my father was diagnosed. He was 50 at the time when he was diagnosed. So not quite early onset, but not the typical kind of picture of someone with Parkinson's that you might imagine. And his symptoms at first were pretty slight. You know, I think his first symptoms that he had were he had some cramping on a run. My dad was an athlete back when he was healthy. He did a lot of triathlons, a lot of running, a lot of biking. Started to notice some cramping and eventually, you know, went to the doctor and realized that, you know, this persistent cramping and pain was, was Parkinson's. And so his early symptoms, 
he had the type of tremors that I think you see with some people with Parkinson's. And it was a minor disruption at first. But then, you know, you sort of get these additional symptoms. You'll be at one point in the day, you'll have the tremors. And another point in the day, you'll have rigidity. You'll have kind of involuntary, you know, muscle spasms. You'll have fatigue that'll come on. You'll also, you know, have difficulty enunciating and pronouncing words. You start to lose expression in your face. So some of them are, mm. are really quite, you know, quite a pain to deal with. And others are just sort of like cruel. Don't allow for the kind of connection with um, your family, your friends, or other people you're interacting with. So I started to notice those early on. And obviously, you, you can get by with some of those early symptoms. Like when I was a teenager and I was still in high school, he was doing okay, but things sort of took a turn right around the time when I was about to leave college. And that's sort of, that's where the, the journey kind of really begins with us. Right. So through your like teenage years, it hadn't been too much of a problem. Was part of that what Parkinson's becomes wasn't yet apparent, so you didn't really know what was on the horizon and like you were 13, 14. What did these things even mean? Thinking back, they didn't mean very much to me. Like old age was completely foreign in every manifestation of it. You're, you're totally right. And you know, when you're that young, I think you, you sort of lack the empathy skills. <laughs> and you also lack the life experience sort of understand the gravity of a situation like that. So, you know, I knew it was serious. I tried to internalize that. The background here also is that my parents were going through a divorce at the time. So it was already kind of tumultuous in the household. My dad had moved out across town um, and I would see him only on the weekends. And sort of my family structure was kind of disintegrating before my eyes and, and my dad's health was sort of at the center of this. But like I said, for, for a time, it was manageable and it's a combination of treatment and therapy and and just sort of altering your lifestyle. But my dad started pretty quickly on carbidopa levodopa, which is like a synthetic form of dopamine, which helps to replace the chemical that you lack because of the Parkinson's disease. But it's degenerative. So over time, it gets worse. And you can take more medicine, but at some point that becomes somewhat ineffective and you're sort of fighting a losing battle. Additional symptoms my dad dealt with where I mentioned kind of fatigue. He started really having trouble with balance to the point where he'd be falling quite often. Uh, and I'd kind of see him and he'd have a new cut on his arm or even his head. And it's like, I was sort of watching him you know, kind of fall apart almost literally before my eyes. And that was, that was tough as a young person because I think I wanted to sort of hold him up. And I think all of us do. We want to hold up our parents as these heroes. And it's like, you know, you sort of realize they become mortal uh, in more ways than one as you get a little bit older. So, and I think the hard part there is I was trying to become my own person at the time and I was trying to become independent, but I was also not quite fully independent, still needed the validation, still needed the affection, still needed the attention and the sort of splintering of my family at that time became a huge challenge. This is interesting that on one side, it seems that through your teenage years, your dad's condition wasn't having too much of a direct impact on you or, you know, you're just not quite at that level of maturity to fully kind of soak up what it means. And yet on the other side, the stability of your family life is beginning to fall apart and disintegrating. You're beginning to see your father not as this invincible figure who can get things done and climb ladders and fix windows and that pillar of support is going your parents are splitting up how does that then unprepare you for going to college and then things taking a turn for the worst with your father i think part of me was was a little you know hesitant to actually go away to college so i headed to the university i went to in washington dc and was 18 and uh, I think my dad was in good enough shape where I wasn't genuinely concerned about his day-to-day -day safety. And that was good enough for me to make the, the trek down to DC to go to you know, George Washington University where I went to, I felt pretty unprepared, all things considered. I had done well in school. 
I had gotten myself a scholarship to, to go to GW. So I felt good about those things. But, you know, I think whenever you have a feeling like someone needs you and you're leaving, it's really difficult to do that. And at the same time, I felt this need to fulfill a commitment to myself, which is I always knew I was going to go to college. Like this was obvious. You know, I knew I was going to go away to college and I was going to use that time to sort of craft and mold the person that I was going to be. And so it wasn't that difficult a choice, but it became clear going, you know, through uh, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior years, my dad was declining. And I knew that it would come to a head pretty soon. When I was in college, he began to live with his sister because he couldn't live by himself anymore. But my aunt was having her own health issues and really could not continue to take on the responsibility of being that sort of support structure and roommate to my father, who frankly was probably not a really good roommate. <laughs> He's super messy, super irresponsible, generally a good guy, but like probably hard to live with. <laughs> And, you know, I think what's hard is like my dad at that time was also trying to get his last licks. I think he realized that the walls were closing in a little bit. He knew he was declining. And so there were some behaviors that, you know, and some choices that he made that I just that I write about in the book that didn't make me proud. But I also it became evident that like he needed help. And ironically, his his son was was thinking about the one who is going to try and be that help and try and kind of fix things. Right. You've kind of mentioned it a couple of times now, I guess, how your dad has sort of, I almost want to say, like, let you down. And this That's is kind of maybe something we can all sort of, I think everyone relates to that time when you realize your parents are just human and like, <laughs> they screw up and they, mm -hmm. like, and you're like, right. How does this then leave you? How did your dad get these licks, as you call them? You know, what, what that shows about what was important to him or what he felt was important. And then how does that when these roles begin to reverse, you know, how does that change that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's hard. And I think, you know, I'll sort of answer the question, but then I'll also provide the context that like, to build on what I was saying before, I think everyone holds their parents to an impossibly high standard. And then you get a little bit older, and you start to realize they're human. And then you get older still, and you realize that you're making some of the mistakes that maybe they made, and then you get to a point where you where you forgive them. And that is sort of like the full journey mm -hmm. of every child, I think in some form. My dad, he went from being really healthy, really strong, really physically active and super confident guy to someone who was sort of like becoming, slowly becoming a prisoner in his own body. So, you know, some of the things that he did, you know, I think that I would go over the house, there'd be different, you know, his, his place where he lived, and there'd be like different women that I didn't really know uh, and never really felt comfortable around. I found evidence of drug use uh, in the house when I was like 15 years old. And I was like, uh, I don't really know how to feel about this. And it's not necessarily the last licks, but it's like a lack of attention sometimes to making me and my little brother, who's five years younger than me, feel welcome and appreciated and loved. Dinner was rarely cooked. Sometimes I felt bad because I didn't think my dad was, was really capable of cooking like a great meal just physically. He wasn't always thoughtful about like cleaning. And, you know, it's like little things that like kind of added up and it, uh, like I just kept getting the signal that like, okay, like he's becoming more and more self-absorbed maybe because he has to. But at the time I was like super resentful. I was like, man, I just, I want my dad to show up for me and mm -hmm. my little brother. And like, this is hard. My mom clearly doesn't have any real responsibility here anymore. She kind of is like, done with this so and that was before I left and went to college so I left and go to college and like I would periodically come back and I would realize like this is not good and I think my dad began sort of grasping at straws you know he resorted to gambling at times he resorted to get rich quick schemes his business that he led failed and then he sort of tried to reinvent it and resurrect it a couple times to no avail 
And I just, I saw helplessness and I was like, I've got to step in. When I was ready to graduate college, I needed to find my, my dad another place to live at the very least because his sister was kicking him out and ultimately decided that um, the best place for him to live was down in DC with me. And so I mentioned sort of the journey beginning. This is sort of like what I kind of formally talk about the journey beginning. I found a place at the edge of the campus of George Washington where I was going to school. I knew I was about to start grad school. So I found him a place to live within an assisted living facility uh, called St. Mary's Court. And it was literally a, a block from campus and like two or three blocks from where I lived. So in the, in the fall of uh, 2007, put all his stuff in a U-Haul truck and drove down and uh, moved him in. Right. We had a conversation prior to now and you were talking about how you were feeling when you began to lose who your father was. And I thought that happened much later at the age when he moved in and you were seeing perhaps more rapid decline. Now it's really interesting to see that this is actually a a long process and it's not just bodily function. It's the things that your father appeared to believe in, you know, and make him tick. And the, the example declined as much or in a more meaningful way than, than his body. And I think that seems really powerful. So now you've got the transition point being your dad coming to live with you. What did that feel like? Did you realize that things were very different? How old were you at this point? I was 22 and I was so completely overwhelmed. In my mind, I was like, okay, here's a chance to like to show up for my dad, be a really, really good example for my little brother to do the right thing. And I remember that first day, I was like basically on the verge of a panic attack, like moving him in. And I was like, what did I get myself into? I think my mom had actually told me, I felt horrible just hearing this from her. And it felt horrible just the fact that she felt like she could say this to me. But she told me that this was a decision that could ruin my life, that moving my dad down to DC. And you know, it's like that felt like you have a lot of gall saying that to me. You know. Particularly as she left. <laughs> right. or, there, or there was a split anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I'll say, so I don't forget it, that the relationship that my parents had is much more complicated than I gave her credit for at the time. So earlier on, and when you're younger, everything's black and white. But you very quickly learn that like everything is shades of gray. So, you know, I was beginning to learn that my dad wasn't necessarily this exemplar of a human being, right? And it wasn't just his diagnosis that prompted my mother to divorce him. There were many, many other things that led into that. But still, I had this vision that I was going to like help correct our relationship and we would be close all of a sudden. But yet, like I moved him in to St. Mary's Court here and I was like, what did I get myself into? I am really, really not prepared for this. And that night he was going to dinner in the cafeteria and he wasn't using his walker, which I've already sort of like had him promise me he was going to do, which in and of itself was a very tough series of conversations. He tripped and fell in the cafeteria over some other resident's chair and he busted his head open right above his eyebrow. And I got a call that evening, which was the first of hundreds of these phone calls that he was in the ER at the GW University Hospital. I had to go get him. And so that was the first of dozens of ER visits that first night that he moved to DC, I was like, this is like poetry. Like this is, I'm getting what I deserve here. Like I thought I was gonna be a big man and show up and take control. And now it's like, I have a child or I'm a babysitter. I'm like doomed to an indeterminate number of years looking after my dad while he falls and hits his head and I've got to like clean up the mess. What was that realization like? (laughs) It was really heavy because again, like against the context of 
where I was living and how I was seeing my friends live and the lifestyle I thought that I might be living as a, you know, a young grad student in Washington, DC, it was really hard. And I think immediately one of my responses was like, I have to like just compartmentalize the hell out of this. There's the world that I, that I exist in where I take care of my dad. And then there's the world where I'm dating and going to class and going out with friends and getting drunk and um, being just this, you know, this yuppie type, right? That just had to remain completely separate because if I let my dad creep too far into my, my universe, uh, it would be tainted. It would sort of spoil everything. So I tried to prevent that. So were you able to live your life as a graduate student, be like your friends, go to parties, date? Um, for a time, yeah. And it, it worked. And I think there were moments where I'd, you know, it would be like late at night and I'd be out somewhere and kind of having fun. I'd get one of those phone calls, um, either from the facility or from an emergency room. It was like, all right, time to tend to dad. Um, you'd be in the middle of a date and you're like... It, it, it had happened. Yeah. I mean, definitely it happened. I think there was, there was a time where I was actually at a uh, like a holiday party late at night and uh, my, my father called me and he didn't really understand at the time, but he was having hallucinations and he thought that uh, there were ticks crawling over his body and he was sort of taking tweezers uh, to these spots where he thought there were ticks and I, you know, I showed up as quick as I could and he was sort of gouging his skin at, at places on his arm where there were freckles and he just, he couldn't, you know, this was the beginning of early, early dementia that he had associated with the Parkinson's, which was sort of just a, a progression. That was like a kind of a horrific moment where I had to like calm him down, get him straightened out, get him cleaned up and get him into bed. But uh, that was part of the gig. So, you know, for, for a time that was it. And, you know, he, he lived in St. Mary's in assisted living for only about a year, but it was a really rough year. And then it was really, really apparent that he needed to be in a nursing facility, even if I wanted to. I couldn't take care of him on my own. Like there was no way that was going to happen with the commitments I had made with the job and school. I wouldn't have the space to actually accomplish what I needed to do for myself unless I made that transition for him. So we, we did make that transition. It was one where like the executive director of St. Mary's Court was like, this has to happen. And I think deep down my dad understood that he couldn't navigate most of the day to day on his own anymore. It was just, it was way too much for him. So you're doing your best to be a student, being a young professional, looking after your dad. You have a group of friends around you. I expect they know that, oh, Josh's dad, he's got dementia. We, we get it. Did they get it? That's a great question. And the answer is no. <laughs> There's a couple of ways I look at this question. On one hand, I really, really appreciate people that try to empathize with others and try to put themselves in the shoes of others. On the other hand, I think it's impossible for anyone to actually understand what someone else is going through because the only way to understand is to experience it. And that's mm. completely unique to each of us. So I give some of my friends credit for being there for me as a listening ear. I think that was the greatest value, mm. but they certainly couldn't level with me. They couldn't say, oh yeah, I understand what it's like to try to address this set of symptoms that you're going through mm. with your dad or I know what it's like to try and get your parent to take their meds on time or commit to using a mobility assistance device. I couldn't have those conversations. And I think I got frustrated early on at maybe attempting to, and I had a couple of interactions with women I was dating at the time where I, I was actually looking for some support and some help. It was not their form of quality time, basically, uh, I was told. And so um, that was sort of a, reinforced the idea that 
this was yet again my, my burden to bear on my own. And, you know, I didn't do myself any services by like not seeking out caregiver support groups. That's a huge community that exists out there. And I don't know that it really existed in the way it does online. Like you can go on Facebook and you can find caregiver support groups for any of a number of conditions and diseases and disabilities. And they're wonderful communities and they're vibrant and they're active. And you can really relate to people really quickly and ask questions and get feedback. Not only did I not even think about the many forms of those, but I just kind of resorted back to like, I have to figure this out. I didn't go after resources that probably could have helped me. Uh, again, probably my naivete, probably my immaturity, especially when I was still young, 23, 24, 25, and like it's sort of accepting like, okay, this is my punishment that I've got to deal with my dad, which is kind of a horrible spot to be in. Yeah, it's, it almost sounds like you feel like you let yourself be cursed. I was wondering, was there anything that your friends did which did help? Yeah, I think reminding me that my service to my dad was not my like defining feature of my life. I think there are times when I got very, very consumed by it. I feel like you, you might be similar in that way. You know, you, you take on a project and it's impossible to go halfway, right? Mm. Um, but like with my dad, I had to remind myself like, okay, like there are moments when you got to turn it off where you got to like step out of the caregiver role and mm. come back to the young adult role stop trying to like be the protector and maybe take some chances, take some calculated risks, expose yourself to something new and stop worrying about what could be. So, you know, I think that function is really important that some of my friends played. Fortunately, like <laughs> growing up, I was like the consummate overachiever, probably because I didn't get a lot of validation from my parents because of what was going on in their universe. Right that stayed with me. And like, I think even as I was taking care of my dad, it was like, always like, how do I like keep him on a regimen? How do I keep him disciplined and focused? Come up with activities he can do, sign him up for classes, check in with his doctors and nurses and therapists and social workers, et cetera. And it's like, you know, you have to step back. And, you know, it was only, I think much, much later on that I actually began to like understand why they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first, because if you don't do that, you know, you're kind of worthless mm -hmm. to the people you're you're trying to support. So the self-care became more and more important. And yeah. I eventually sort of like corrected for that over time. But the first few years that I was in that, that role for dad, I, I did not have good balance at all. Mm. It sounds like you, know, you came from this background of being an overachiever. You set yourself the very modest standard of basically taking on the whole job, you know, being an example to your brother, being the perfect uh, son and made it very difficult for yourself. We're gonna go on to how you put your own oxygen mask on, learn to put your own oxygen mask on first and look after yourself more. But can you take us to rock bottom, basically? Right now I kind of get the feeling that yeah, there's been these difficulties, but can you describe an episode which you realized this was rock bottom and, and like how did you feel? What were the main emotions that summed up your relationship with your dad and with yourself? So rock bottom was, was kind of, <laughs> I think there are maybe two rock bottoms that I'll share with you. One um, relates to my dad and the other sort of a personal one. In 2010, we elected to go through a brain surgery called deep brain stimulation. And it's a very, very invasive procedure, obviously. It is exactly what it sounds like. Two holes are bored through the skull, 
and neurosurgeons insert electrodes near the dopamine producing areas of your brain. It is brutal. And what's funny is like, as much as we know about the human body, we know nothing about the brain. Like it is, it is a wildly complicated frontier space in medicine and there's so much work to be done. But anyway, it's sort of like this brute force approach. You kind of just, the patient is actually conscious during the procedure because they need to test the location of where they put the electrodes. So, you know, they ask my, you know, it's super medieval, right? But, and so, you know, all local anesthesia, crazy, but yeah, they ask you to actually wiggle your fingers and toes and do different things like do a little tap dance while you're on the table. uh, And they've got these things in your head so they can figure out where to put them. Anyway, my dad had the surgery and unfortunately that evening he had a seizure and his whole recovery was compromised. He spent 29 days at the hospital recovering from that, 14 of which were in the ICU and eight were on a ventilator. And that was a period where I thought I was actually gonna lose him. And he went through everything. He had a condition called pneumocephaly where there was air in his brain, you know, and that compromised his condition. He, he had pneumonia while he was on the ventilator. It got real bad. Mm. And I just remember thinking, did I push him to do this? Did I push him to get the surgery with, you know, this hope that I sort of, I had implanted in his brain. Like you could, you could maybe get a little bit better by doing this thing. And I felt horrible that I'd pushed him to do it, but it was a decision we made together. He eventually pulled out of this. He never realized the benefit of the surgery, unfortunately. Mm. It just, the whole event set him back. Even though he had this like device in his brain, it has like a, you have like a pacemaker, basically. There's a battery pack in your chest under your skin mm. um, that like powers the electrodes. I think maybe he got some marginal benefit out of it, but I think the fact that he had mm. that seizure and had that long recovery totally totally wiped out most of the benefit so that was that was like one major low with my dad the the major low part of it was that apart from the 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 operation not going well was the low that came from it from your perspective the guilt or was it the seeing your dad just be the same or worse or or losing lots of money through it what was the actual bit that wrecked you I mean, the guilt was powerful for sure. You know, feeling like I had played a role in the suffering that he was going through just with the decision to have the surgery, I think was, was powerful. I mean, I was, I still didn't understand the fact that like it really had nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. It was, it was an unfortunate series of events to, uh, more, more of that shitty hand that um, he'd been dealt already mm-hmm. uh, just coming his way. But I think, you know, part of it was needing to bear witness. I think there were moments in the hospital, in the ICU, watching him choke on air or watching a team of doctors struggle to intubate him, where it was just, you know, I know that it's my job to sort of like watch and be present and be his advocate. It is hard. And it's also hard to like, you know, you kind of want to will some of that pain to like come your way when you're a family member Mm. or when you're a caregiver or a support person. And you can't do that. That's not how it works. He has to bear it on his own. And my burden is just to be here. And so that powerlessness, I think, is very crippling at times. There was one moment where I had to make a decision. It wasn't really a decision, but it was a choice. Nonetheless, that was offered to me where he needed to have a stomach peg inserted in a feeding tube that would go directly through his abdominal wall. Because after certain number of days when you have a nasogastric tube goes into your nose and down your throat into your stomach 
it'll erode away at your esophagus. It's not advised to have that in for that long. So decided to have that, that stomach peg inserted so we could keep them alive, give them nutrition. That was a moment where do I decide not to and just let him go? Or do I, do I keep him around and give him a chance to fight and get better? And you know, ultimately, most of the doctors that I talked to and some others said that this wasn't really a choice. You know, in that situation, you have to give the person nutrition so they can fight. My father wasn't brain dead. My, my father was, even though he was like on a vent, he was still in this sort of state of pseudo consciousness. Yeah, I was, but I was also learning all this stuff and trying to ask the right questions and absorb the information and advocate for a person that I couldn't really communicate with because of the condition he was in. So it was, it was overwhelming mm. and it was a seriously, seriously trying mm. period in, in my, my role as caregiver for my dad. Yeah. So I mentioned another low. The other low is more of a personal low yeah. uh, about me. Well, maybe this will tie into it. I don't know. Yeah. But we've in a previous conversation talked about the two really negative emotions that you had regarding your father were bitterness and worry bitterness that this person who was supposed to be looking after you well you had become his father in a in a sense of you know the caregiver the protector the one making the decisions and you're bitter about that and you had this feeling of worry because you're like am i going to become like him so before we move on to sort of how you got through these emotions maybe the story you're thinking of might tie into this but i'm really interested just to hear about these two what you feel about having felt them yeah oh man yeah th those are those are two really heavy emotions that i dealt with for a long time and yeah you're right it does tie in so the other the other really big low that i that i went through in uh the summer of 2012 was that i broke my ankle and i'd never broken a bone before i'd never had a really serious injury i was lucky in that respect many years of running soccer and tennis and i played all so frisbee competitively in college so I was, I was pretty lucky in that respect but i was running in an obstacle course race spotted a landing wrong and uh broke the ankle Oof. needed two surgeries to correct my my fibula and i was laid out for about six months and for someone who's like perpetually in motion like me like a bike everywhere you know do a lot of running generally stay fit that was that was really tough and the harder part was i felt more like my dad than i ever had i was you know i was on crutches i was really dependent on help and like me as the consummate individual, like that was, that was really, really, really difficult. And I felt you know, in a way trapped, probably in a way that my, my dad had become very familiar with. Mm. And so my whole sort of like worldview had to recalibrate. And that's, I think, where some bitterness set in. You know, it's like, why me? Why did it have to happen to me? Like, and, you know, I'm talking to someone who's probably grappled with, with that as well. So like, I'm, I'm almost, I want to hear your your take on on bitterness as well but like in that moment it was just like all i could think about is like what am i going to do when i get better like i have the this isn't a sentence i will recover right mm. it's a broken bone people get through this mm. uh but at the time it was so devastating you know it's there were some weird things that i that i sort of went through emotionally and uh, like my relationship with my girlfriend went to shit uh, and I've been dating her for two years and she was like, I can't be around you. And I was like, later, I was like, I sort of understand that. I was pretty horrible. Uh, I was I complained. I whined and I was like kind of just a downer. Um, mm. You know, I thought I might go to law school. So I studied for and, and took the LSAT and yeah, ended up not doing that. I started my own company because I thought maybe I'll just work for myself because I wasn't in love with my job. Mm. Um, and then ultimately after months and like probably during physical therapy, I was like, picking up marbles with my toes, like hundred repetitions at a time. 
Yeah. It's just like, what can I do that'll make me happy? And I knew that riding my bike would make me happy. And so, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as I got better, let's just get on the bike and let's do, let's do an epic long bike ride. And that's, you know, to go back to your comment about putting the mask on, this is my moment to put, put my oxygen mask on. And I needed to step away from my dad. I needed to like regain sort of appreciation for my physical abilities after recovering. And I needed to get out of Washington, D.C. for a little while and, and just see something else for a while. That was an important next step. Right. So you have... <laughs> You have all this business and, you know, and this question of why me and, you know, on that. Well, I, I remember I had a conversation on the, on the Friday. I, I went in for my first round of chemotherapy on Tuesday. And on the Friday, I was going to go home and I was in hospital for three and a half days. And it was that Friday morning that um, I found out I lost John, my brother. And... I, by chance, had already had, I was scheduled to have a conversation with the psychologist who was assigned to me. Laura, she was absolutely you know, brilliant, pulled me over the next 18 months. And I remember having this conversation with her and I had just read a book called What is the What by David Eggers. And it's about a boy um, living in Sudan um, and his, uh, it's a true story, just sort of articulated, if you like, by David Eggers. And the, the village and his family are burnt and butchered. And he has to walk with other you know, hundreds of called lost boys across the desert. So many die from dehydration, from starvation, from animals, from the, the, the rebel forces out there. And I just remember reading that book. And it was, it was kind of by chance I had been reading it. And I was like, well how can I say why me <laughs> when, when there are these other, you know, I've, I've lived for 24 years with so much, with so many opportunities, so much love and support from my, from my parents, my friends. Sure. This bit of my life is shitty, but other people have it so much worse. So, you know, there, there are no guarantees with life. There are no guarantees of uh, being born gives you no rights it gives you no right to the expectation certain things will happen it, it, you know all it means is that you're alive for a period of time and absolutely anything can happen in that time uh, whether it's hopefully some good stuff but it's a hope rather than a, a right anyway so for me bitterness is just this is actually your words you know um you know very unproductive a total an emotion that really drags you down yeah but the question I've got for you then is, it's all very well, someone listening to this and saying, oh, well, they got it sorted. You know, they got through their bitterness. Well, Luke, Luke didn't even really feel bitter in that way. But Josh, how did you get over the bitterness? I mean, this is the journey that we're all on, right? I mean, I think, you know, to me, ultimately, like gratitude is the antidote to bitterness. There is, there's really no way around it. I think there are horrible things that, that will happen to us during our lives. And if, you know, if you're lucky that you haven't had something immensely devastatingly challenging happen to you, that, that is incredibly lucky, but also like it is a reality that you could face at some point. And I am continuously reminded that we have to be grateful for the things we have. It's a trope. And I think we look past it to not take things for granted, but if you've been exposed to loss, if you've been exposed to <laughs> some of those challenges, if you've borne witness to someone 
going through something incredibly painful, you arrive at it, it being gratitude a lot, a lot faster. And it, it was very circuitous for me. I think I, it took me a long time to get there. I think at first, complaining was a comfort uh, and almost like a badge of honor. Taking care of my dad was like this punishment that like I held up as doing this to get through it, kind of just gritted my teeth. This is my decision, stick to it. It's just stubbornness at work. But like, I think you sort of have to shift your perspective where you need to take care of yourself, right? In that role. But you also have to like recognize that showing appreciation is so powerful. And if you can show more appreciation for the things you have uh, and for, for the time that I have with my dad, for the things that I knew we could do together, not focusing on all the stuff that like we couldn't do or the things I had lost or the childhood that I, that I wanted to have. Once I got sort of like past that stuff, you know, which is hard, uh, then you get to the space where it's like, okay, what is the realm of the possible? Uh, and what's at the edge? How do, we, how do we push the edge, right? How do we make that time that we have as meaningful as it can be? So I don't know. I think that gratitude comes in to sort of like save us from bitterness. And for me, it was like iterative. It was like a practice. It wasn't like one day I woke up and I was like, I'm going to be grateful. I think after breaking the ankle, that big bike ride I was talking about was a bike ride I did from Washington, D.C. to Portland, Oregon. I spent 73 days on the road. Um, nice. 4,275 miles. You know, it was no Bristol to Beijing, but, uh, you know, it was... Uh, <laughs> I've gone so far. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was enough to get me out of my head. It was enough to reconnect me with nature and it was enough to sort of reconnect me with with my own body and it really convinced me that you have to take advantage of what is available to you not going after the things that you dream about and that you envision in your head you're sort of doing yourself a disservice and you're being somewhat ungrateful you know yeah. so there's a lot of things in there that are like, you know, <laughs> chiming and put like a set of bells and you've kind of gone ding, 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 ding. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, I can see how that fits in. And one of the things that you're saying is like, you know, complaining can be a comfort. It can be this like very delicious feeling that, and it's very self-reinforcing that look at me, you know, my life is hard and you can really, there's something to that kind of perverse pleasure. And what it really makes me think about is uh, one of the books that was recommended on a previous episode of this podcast by mm. Philip Taylor, um, which is called Getting Out the Box. And the box is all about if you do something and you feel bad about it, because you know, you should have done it, then you have to create this whole system of justification of actually why you were right not to do something that you knew you deep down should or wanted to do and usually the way this happens is it becomes everyone else's fault and everyone else's problem and it seems very similar that this complaining you're like life has treated me so badly and the inner bit of you is like yes it has treated me so badly and is you know no one is there to help me and you're like yes <laughs> everyone has like screwed me over and so you end up thinking that you're entirely justified in behaving the way that you do it's fascinating and the, the really fascinating thing i think is that it like actually ends up making you unhappy and actually it's just such a destructive behavior whereas if you learn to appreciate or you know and i think it is a process like it's something that's taken me a long time too. appreciation it's it's hard to do because you're like oh great i'm gonna get on i'm gonna live my life and i'm you know i've got to pick up the kids from school and i really want a coffee and yeah you know and then we're watching a film that evening 
I don't have time to appreciate my life. I'm living it. But it's like, actually, taking the time makes you happier. And it's, isn't that what we're after? Like, how easy it is to slip into something that is so destructive and feels so good in the moment. And actually, how difficult it is to do something that gives us a lot more long-term pleasure. It's bizarre. It is bizarre, but I think it requires discipline. And I think there are some people that are gifted with the nature of always being happy. And their sort of natural state is one of being at ease and not having incredibly high expectations for themselves or for the things around them. Uh, then there are other people that are sort of born with or sort of like grow into a space where they're always wanting. And I think that can mean you're really ambitious or it can mean you're obsessive and it becomes like a, a, like a relentless self-improvement thing. Or, you know, in the case where you're not improving, then it's self-resentment and self-hate. So like, I think you're, you're spot on, you know? And I think I've learned only recently that like, yes, we're all on multiple journeys, but like there, there's an important journey that I'm on towards self-acceptance. Mm. And what's funny is I think you mentioned that the two emotions that I've battled you know early on kind of through much of my caregiving experience yeah bitterness was one of them but worry was the other one and it was mostly worry that i would become my father or become some version of my father and i think ultimately you know where i sort of ended up but like you know you, you can't you, you can't spend your time worrying about what might happen or what you might become and i think that sort of goes hand in hand with this notion of gratitude and happiness. I think interesting to hear your point that it's discipline that could be something that really helps you make the transition or build towards trying to appreciate rather than complain. And you know, discipline is something that is built. It's a muscle, at least in my own experience. And it, it does take time. And you're also talking about, you know, you went on this cycle trip, you cycled over 4,000 miles over 72 days to Oregon. And you said, you know, you're taking advantage of what's available. And to me, that's very much in line with my philosophy of making the most of opportunities or creating them. And that doesn't mean creating opportunities doesn't mean getting Elon Musk to take me to the moon. What can you actually do? What can you affect in your own sphere of influence and life that you have the opportunities that are around? So it sounds like a very positive thing that rather than you saying, well, I want to, I don't know, do the Dakar rally, you're like, actually for me, it's going to be cycling across America. Can you take us through some of this journey that put you on this upward path? It sounds like the cycle was the beginning, but as you're going on a more upward path, your father's also going to be going on a continuing downward path, but you must have somehow been able to deal with it better. So yeah, I mean, I think I took the three months off to go ride my bike across the country and I came back. My sort of resolution was I will not resort to normal. Uh, I will not default to the ordinary everything should have intentionality and purpose and if possible, be extraordinary. And so that was, an overachiever then. <laughs> I know, a, a, different, a different kind of overachievement. I mean, I think the, the validation that I was seeking at that point, now I'm, I'm 28, 29 in the story here. I'm mm -hmm. 35 now, by the way. It was a different kind of validation I was seeking. It was more about sort of showing appreciation for my potential. And by showing appreciation for my potential, it, it sort of go, comes back to that notion of gratitude and sort of really being thankful for the gifts I have. So that is coming against the backdrop of my father declining pretty steadily. Things started to really get in a place where each of many systems was beginning to fall. And so mobility wise, my dad went from a walker to a wheelchair. Sometimes he would be able to get up and kind of walk behind the wheelchair when he was feeling good. But then eventually that went away and 
the majority of his time was in the wheelchair and then eventually it was like 100% of the time. He went from being able to manage some functions of daily life to not so many functions of daily life. In the beginning, he might have been able to brush his teeth and that went away. Then getting himself to and from the bathroom, being able to feed himself, I think was more and more difficult and more and more of it would sort of end up on a bib or on a shirt or his pants than actually get into his mouth. What do you do in those situations? Well, that's why he's in nursing. There's a scaling up of support. How much of that were you involved with this extra, given his, I suppose, loss of function in a sense? In the beginning, I visited probably two or three times a week. I was there for a few hours at a time. I think over time, toward the end of his life, it was much less. More of the cognitive decline became ever-present in the last few years. And there were definitely times when I was visiting and it wasn't beneficial for me to be there. He no longer recognized me. He was no longer lucid. We wouldn't actually be able to have the meaningful conversations that we'd want. I would give multiple phone calls a week to the nursing home to sort of check on him and see how he's doing. But toward the very end, it was upsetting. But I think the one thing that I would say is as my father was declining, I began to sort of like overcompensate in the other direction by going after it in my biking and running pursuits. So within two months, I'd run my first marathon and I was like, okay, so I get what this marathoning thing is all about. I'd never run a really long race before. I think the longest race I'd run was 10K. But I was like, this is doable and I could do more. I started experimenting with like pushing myself. Maybe it was sort of like a direct reaction to seeing my dad going through what he was going through, but it was also a space for me to meditate and reflect and process. It was a great opportunity to step away from what had become a very hectic, fast-paced lifestyle between work and friends and dating and other things. So I really appreciated taking the time to, to get out in the woods for a few hours for a nice long run. So I'm still trying to get my head around whether you were able to move forward as even as your father was declining, you know, beyond these really difficult emotions of, you know, bitterness and this worry, was it the endurance sports that helped beyond all other things because that almost seems oh i took up running and my problems were solved attitude and as much as i love running i that just seems a little bit simplistic so take us a little bit further what was actually all the different factors at play or or, or the main ones yeah i mean i think it's hard to dissect this sometimes i mean you know i think that part of it you know i, re- I recognize this later on was the fact that there is a version of the future where i have parkinson's that is a potential reality. There's a version of the future where I have any of a countless number of other <laughs> ailments too, uh, right? But I know that I'm healthy right now. If I don't take advantage of that health right now, if I don't take advantage of what I can do right now and scratch that itch, it is a, it is a disservice to myself. It is, it is me not showing the appreciation that I believe that I should show. So I think that, that was a big part of the motivation. Um, for going out there. And then I think that, you know, when I was younger, I I did have like some bucket list items. Like I did have, maybe not riding my bike across the country. I think that came into view later on, but I think I had always wanted to run a marathon. I had always wanted to like explore my limits, but I I got this feeling that like, I can't keep waiting for like the perfect moment an opportunity to materialize. And I sort of got to the space where I realized I'm never actually going to be prepared for anything if I have an idea that I want to do something and you have the means to do it and you have like a little window to do it, you have to do it for yourself, you know, and for your future self, because <laughs> you, you don't know, you don't know what, what time might have in store for you. So, you know, I, I think that's part of it. And I think did the running cure me. I, I don't think so. I think it helped. <laughs> I think it helped me. I think some of my best thinking happens when I'm running. I would regularly 
turn on my, my voice notes app while I was running and just talk into it during runs and come back to it later, you know, find something fascinating. I, I just uh, recently listened to the recording I did on a run on the day my dad died. And it's a fascinating little artifact uh, that sort of like I captured in that, in that moment. It was good enough therapy for me at the time. While I was taking care of my dad, I started writing. And the writing that I did was definitely cathartic, but it was mostly these just like crappy journal entries about like, oh my God, my dad said this today, or like I was at the dog shops for like five hours today, or my dad's wheelchair got stuck in like a, a curb or a bump in the road and I almost tipped him out. It was stuff like that. And eventually that became the basis of much of the content of the book. But at the time, the writing was incredibly powerful as a tool, partially because I felt like I didn't have too many people I could talk to. So between the combination of the self-care through running and riding, self-therapy through writing, and just learning to like, you know, have the discipline to express that gratitude, I think I got there mm-hmm. uh, and found that, found that balance with my dad while also really trying to make the most of the time that we had together while he was there, physically comfortable enough to like have a good visit or have a good outing, you know, to the movies or to Target or to a restaurant or something like that uh, mm-hmm. while he was still doing relatively okay. Before you launch another question on me, talk to me about motivation. Tell me what was the genesis of you going after it? Was that always ingrained in you or is that something that switched on at some point? Um, I think to an extent I've had it. I can think of, you know, periods of my life, teenage years when I was, I would look back and say I was pretty idle um, and didn't really appreciate the value of hard work. I did it because my school required me to and like expected it and I did it because my parents expected it. But in terms of motivation of doing something for myself, it took the first two and a half years of university. Uh, This doesn't sound so great anymore, does it? But basically for me to like not do any work, really try and get away with doing as little work as possible discovered I could do a very little work for the whole of the entire year first year then I began to discover a I was tanking my grades and b actually when I started to work more I began to enjoy it more and I also realized okay why do I want to work you know why do I want to study you know, there, there are some pretty obvious answers. I didn't come up with anything like original, but it was so important for me to actually work out why I wanted to put the time into studying to hopefully get, you know, good grades at the end of it. So that was a bit of maturity there. You know, first year spent rowing, <laughs> last year spent studying and doing triathlon and actually working very hard because I knew why I wanted to. That's kind of how I thought a bit about motivation then. How I think about motivation now, and I think this ties in with my philosophy of I may maybe we could call it say enlightened self-interest. I quite often use the term being selfish, but I think that just has some more difficult connotations. It's like if if I want to be happy, if I want a good job, if I want to do stuff that interests me, uh, if I want to feel good about myself because I'm you know in good shape, I published a paper, I've produced a podcast, then that requires work. And so actually, for me to be happy, I need to put this work in. So the motivation like explains itself, because you're like, okay, if I want to get to this point, I've got I've got to do the work. And when it came to my diagnosis, and I think this was a, a bit of a turning point, because you're faced with this choice 
of in, in a more acute way. I think most of the time you can kind of avoid the fact that there are choices. But with me, it became very apparent that I had this choice of, on one hand, I can accept that I'm probably not going to be around for very long. So like, screw it. I'm um, like, screw life. Um, you, you, you've, you screwed up on me. So like, fuck you. Um, and on the other side was actually, I have the opportunity to do everything in my power to give myself the best possible opportunity of getting through this, say, chemotherapy, through the treatment, maybe being unusual for what I was diagnosed with and living for a longer period of time. And then the other thing, which is even more important, is I'm going to have a better time. I'm going to enjoy living more if I'm doing things that I want to be doing. So my life is going to be richer and more valuable if I'm doing that. And that's it's again, you know, it's coming back to this kind of complaining appreciation thing. It's very seductive to say, well, life is wrong with me, so I'm going to give up on life. But if you don't have much time, and I've, I've said this before, but if you don't have much time, then that time becomes so much more precious. And that is, to me, the biggest reason, right? Well, let's make the most of it. And if dying in two months isn't enough motivation for you, then like, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, so those are a few thoughts there. Yeah. You're coming back to something that I, I haven't really spent much time during this discussion thinking about, but I was lucky to learn early on in my life by watching and being with my dad that time is our most valuable asset. There are some people who don't get to that until I think much later on in life, they realize, oh, I'm getting old or the window is closing on, on opportunities. I think you start to get that as you have life experience, but one benefit to watching my father's decline and his death was just this early realization that like, man, time, time is the commodity. It is more valuable than anything because you cannot get it back. And we're all sort of on this level playing field. Money, sure. If you're into money, go after money, go make money. No, <laughs> I right, can't exactly. that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right, right, don't. Um, this isn't like, allowed on the podcast. There's, there's right, a limit exactly. to the, self, the, no, the it's, freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you on that. You know, so it's got to be more about it's got to be more about time. You know, mm. um, how are you spending it? Uh, how are you spending it? And how are you are you maximizing your happiness or your impact if that's your thing uh, mm. or some blend, right? Yeah. So. I think I guess something else there about how important it is to sort of savor moments as they come along. And this is something that I've changed and I'm quite conscious about. You know, like just earlier today, talking, going for a walk with a friend. You know, and you're like, wow, this is actually like a really special moment, and recognizing it as such, and then making that a habit. And that's something I never did before. And it's something I do more now. And it, it's easy to look at me and say, and it's something I think about. You know, I'm like, Luke, you could be dead in a year. Like enjoy this this is really precious but and someone said well you know i don't have cancer but actually you know that's the point when i say look at my brother he died um running in the lake district out of the blue there are so many i've got four friends from school or four people i knew from school who had now passed away in one freak accident uh, incident or another so it's just like i don't think anyone can be complacent because you just don't know no no yeah, I mean, it's, and it, this is unfair, but I think that there are, you know, I mentioned that like, you know, some people have gone through just some incredibly immense challenges, but I have a little bit more respect for the people that have dealt with loss and dealt with sacrifice and that have dealt with yeah, other, other just immense challenges. For the other folks, not that I dislike them, but I find that I'm able to connect authentically with other people who uh, have been in a caregiver role, for example. Mm -hmm. um, 
And as I'm sure you may be able to connect with other people living with cancer, uh, you know, as opposed to like just on paper with, with people who may not have gone through that experience. Yeah. Um, like I said, I think it's a little bit unfair, but I think there's a little bit of perspective that's offered mm. through that and a little bit of wisdom for the people that choose to, to pull, pull those yeah. lessons off. So you were saying, well, you recently re-listened to a voice note you recorded on the day that your dad died. And I think before we really focus on perhaps what you've taken away from this whole experience, can you take us back to that day and what was going through your mind? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, in some ways this is a culmination. Um, To be provocative, quite provocative, so so bite my head off you go for it it's almost a victory you've got to the end and you've got out the other side and yet those i know those aren't your words but the feeling of guilt that goes with someone's death so give us a flavor of how it was for you yeah at the very end of my dad's life things were not good he had been on hospice for about a year and provided palliative care you know, he was at the point where he could really no longer speak. And if he, you know, when he could articulate, it was very soft and very hard to understand. My visits, I would get a few minutes of present lucid dad and the rest were kind of like, he was somewhere else confined to the wheelchair 100% of the time, fully, fully dependent on every activity of daily life. And he was uh, limited to a honey thick liquid diet. So everything he ate was the same consistency and uh, even water. He had to have uh, thickened water because of the choking hazard. So he had cataracts, severe cataracts. And when I brought up the idea of having surgery, his doctor basically said that there was not enough of a conscious brain left to justify the surgery. So that that should tell you how far along we were. So, you know, when he died, the biggest emotion I felt was relief. Uh, And there's some guilt that comes with feeling relief, obviously. But it was time. Uh, and I say that and I almost like want to kick myself because my dad was 73. Uh, I wasn't an old man. Uh, he was older, um, but life had been cruel. Spent 23 years battling this progressive neurological disease that had only ever gotten worse. And he fought really hard, but you know, by the end it was, it was time. And so that was a rough day. Uh, I remember going to the nursing home early that morning. They called me about 4.30 in the morning. I was there about an hour later. And you know, my father was more still than he had ever been, right? Just laying, laying in bed. And I remember taking the time to hug every single one of the nursing staff that was there because they were as much family to my father at that point. They had known him for nine years. And they had just taken such incredible care of him. So that was really, really important to me to make sure that I expressed the gratitude to them, which I did all the time. Absolute heroes. But saying goodbye and remembering him was tough. I remember thinking like the first real struggle I had was like, how am I going to tell the story of my father? And it's kind of a shame that so many of my memories of him were memories of the last 11 years since I moved him from New Jersey down to Washington. They're that version of my father that uh, weren't his best self, perhaps. It was when he was battling the disease. It was when he was in the wheelchair. It was when he was unable to swallow his food, etc. But you have to find a way to combine the more recent memories with the ones that you choose to elevate from earlier in his life. And so that struggle of finding the right balance of memories of 
telling his story. That became my obsession over the coming weeks. And I did two memorial services for him, one in DC and one in New Jersey. And the New Jersey one was more of the friends that he knew when he was healthy and from many years ago. And my mom was kind enough to, to host that one at her house, the childhood home that I grew up in where my mom and my dad raised me. It was a struggle to express his story, but I think I did okay. And one of the things I haven't really mentioned yet was that my f- father is a big artist. And so at each of these memorials, I took all of his artwork. I put it up all over the walls and it became sort of a celebration of his creativity, which I loved. And people got to witness it. And I, you know, I told folks they could take a piece for themselves as long as they made a donation to the Hebrew home of Greater Washington, where my dad spent those last nine years of his life. But the one thing I think I would offer that became very, very meaningful and cathartic for me is that there were a lot of folks that didn't really show up for my dad when he needed them. And I got to see those people face to face when I led that memorial service in New Jersey. And these are folks that knew my dad when he was healthy, but they weren't really around when he got sick. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but I basically, I went off script during my eulogy for a moment. I was like, I said, it is infinitely harder to visit someone when they're not the version of the person that you used to know and where their decline or their health, their condition is in a state where it would create some of those memories that I was talking about, those sort of unfortunate memories that would sort of color your version of them. And I said, you know, if there's one thing that comes out of this, you know, please know that like the best thing you can do is show up for people when, you know, it may be uncomfortable and it may be really, really difficult for you, but that is when they need you. And that is going to make all the difference to them. And so like in that moment, I remember kind of seeing some people kind of look down and shift a little bit. I think everyone in the room kind of knew what I was talking about, but Mm. You know, I hope that there was there was something they took away from that moment. That, I guess, when you have people who who are around who are friends and then not there when you need the support, it's very easy to judge. And I wonder, you know, it could well be very valid to judge as well. And I guess what I'm wondering in my head is, you know, there are some friends who support and reveal themselves to be true friends and others who don't. And then you also kind of wonder, but if, if a really good friendship is something that's kind of random because you guys just happen to get along, I am struck by this thought of like, to what extent is it because they're bad people? I guess it must be very tough if like people you thought were really good friends and then they don't turn up and you thought that like there was something really meaningful and you get along and then they say well there's nothing in it for me anymore. There are no past debts. I don't even, I'm out of my depth now at this point. What do you think? No, I mean, I think you're talking about the essence of relationships. I think the story of me and my dad is the story of relationships and, you know, their evolution over time. I think tough times call into question the nature of the bonds between people. And on one hand, you could say like, you know, if things are crappy and someone doesn't show up, does that mean you have friends at all? Sure, you could say that. But I think we don't, on a, on a much bigger picture, we don't normalize illness and disability and aging and dying in a way that we possibly could and make it a little bit more palatable for people to approach those subjects and show up for people in those moments. You know, so many of the lessons that I learned in taking care of my father came because I spent countless hours at a nursing home and I watched people at the end of their life. I watched people taking care of those people at the end of their life. And that ecosystem offers reminders, right? To cherish what you, what you have and to spend your time wisely and to show gratitude, right? So like, 
is the solution then getting people to spend more time volunteering or going to nursing homes and visiting the sick or doing things that might otherwise make them uncomfortable? Possibly. But I think just generally, we can get better about having some of those conversations about what end of life looks like or what caregiving looks like. And what's ironic is that the majority of people will have an experience, are going through an experience, or will have an experience being a caregiver. And we will all, in some form, have a kind of end of life experience. The universality of all this kind of a perplexing to me compared to how little we want to talk about it. And mm. it, that, that, that's, that's a struggle. That's part, it's, it's part of my motivation for writing the book. It's like, there needs to be more dialogue here. There needs to be more engagement. We should be more comfortable talking about this stuff, considering how many people are in this space. I think that's a really interesting point that perhaps because you know your your father's friends felt very estranged from this condition, didn't relate to it, or probably wanted to block it out, and maybe in the same way that you saw it, then felt worried you could turn into that they didn't want that reminder. And actually, if we can, as you say, make the acceptance that we are going to die and the final months are not going to look like particularly pretty in most people's scenarios, then it kind of takes away the, not the demonization, the, some of the stigma, some of the worry, some of the resistance of, oh, I'm not sure I want to see this person in this altered state rather than simply it's another stage of growing older. I really want to know, you know, you decided to write this book and you've kind of talked a little bit about why. What are you hoping people will take away from it? What are the key messages from your experience that you want people to glean and maybe absorb into a little seed that blossoms inside of them and <laughs> takes them down a little uh, other avenue? Um, sorry for the poetry. Just you know. No, I think that's beautiful. I think all great ideas start as a little seed of inspirational spark, right? And it has to come, you know, sometimes you're lucky and that can come from within, but most of the time I think you, you get that from like, you know, something you see or you read or you experience, right? So like, that's part of the reason why I'm trying to put the story out in the universe. Hopefully there is a seed of something that becomes valuable to someone that can nurture and grow for themselves. But I think that there are a couple of big things that we've already kind of talked about. I mentioned earlier that this notion of like never really fully being prepared. And it's funny, sometimes you think you are. Like when I started the journey with my dad, I pulled all the stuff in a U-Haul and drove him down to DC and moved him into St. Mary's Court. Mm. It's like- Simple. Yeah, oh, I, I got this, right? Part of me is like, okay, I was naive and I was, I was younger, I was 22 and I thought I was like person in charge. But what's funny is like, I didn't realize how unprepared I was. So I sort of gifted myself that. But like later on, I think you, you get more in touch with the reality but like you have to come to a place where like you just have to go for it. You have to take advantage of that window of opportunity, uh, whether it's to run across the Grand Canyon, which is something I had the chance to do last year, or it's ride your bike across the country, or take an hour and go visit your, your father in the nursing home. Make all of that count. But like even at the end, I wasn't prepared to like deal emotionally with my, with my dad or like be the best caregiver ever. I was always making it up as I went along. And like, I think on some of my greatest runs and my, some of my greatest bike rides, I'm always making up as I went along, right? You have a route, but like, you don't know how it's going to go. You just do the best you can. So I think that that was a big takeaway for me. This notion of like arriving at gratitude as, as a really, really important grounding element of my existence, really, really important as opposed to like, you know, the, the luxury or the indulgence of, of complaint, mm-hmm. right? Having the discipline to sort of start your day 
live your day and end your day in a space where you're grateful for the things you have instead of this continuous want that sometimes you're born with. But I think, unfortunately, we're conditioned to have, you mm. know, always get more stuff, always. And then, you know, you said this, which I really appreciate, but this lesson of like having and marking meaningful conversations. So find the people <laughs> that, that you can connect with genuinely, authentically. And then, you know, in your words, acknowledge when you're having a really great conversation as just a way to sort of put a pin in that. It might be a thank you. It might be a, you know, showing appreciation for how, you know, emotionally vulnerable someone is or acknowledging that you learned something, which we very rarely do ever, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because everyone knows everything uh, and has all the answers. You know, marking those moments where you're in that that space of a meaningful conversation and Mm. conveying that. I think that's something that I started to do tried to do toward the end with my dad and i Mm. you know maybe one more key thought which is a lot of us including me which i'm trying to engineer out are very destination oriented Mm -hmm. and i just try to keep going back to like the value of the journey and not necessarily the destination right because you can't just be in a hurry to get everywhere it's a painful way to live yes you know yeah that to me, you know, gratitude, a very specific instance of gratitude of, you know, those conversations, those special moments with friends or even, you know, a sunset or, you know, something you know, particularly or even unparticularly sort of just marking it as special because mm, being alive, pretty cool. Um, yeah. um, if, if, if it goes, you realize how cool it is. And yeah, I think also what you're saying about we are so often, if I get that promotion or if I win a race or if I can buy a house or get the deposit, you know, then my life will be on the right course. Then my life will be sorted. Then I'll be happier and more content uh, and more secure in myself. And I got this really actually from Rich Roll's book. And, you know, if anyone knows, like has contact Rich Roll, please holler. Would love to uh, have a bit of a chin wag with him. But he talks all about the process. And if the process, the day to day isn't enjoyable, well, getting to the goal isn't going to suddenly make that enjoyable. And for me, that's been really powerful to think, actually, would I be happy to live this day, day in, day out? Am I doing the things that make me fulfilled and, and satisfied? And that's not easy you know i'm very lucky to have very few responsibilities at this point and it's something i talked about in an earlier podcast um again with philip who was talked about the um out of the box book and but there, there there are choices to make and if if you're not making the choices that make you happy well then there are serious questions to ask about well, why are you living what are you trying to get out of life what are you doing with it right you've been given this space and it may not be exactly what you want mm-hmm. but what are you making out of it? Right. I couldn't agree more. Right. Josh, that's been um, an amazing conversation to have. There was so much in there. I am, for those, I mean, none of you can actually see me right now. I have four pages of notes of scribbles, which I just jot down things that like have uh, you know, struck me. And as I say, four four pages. Uh, hopefully there was something more than one or two things that were interesting for everyone listening. Before we finish, Josh, you know what's coming. There are three questions that I ask every guest. Your favorite place, your favorite piece of music, and your favorite book uh, for the express reason that I play lip service to learning and wanting to improve myself and knowing where I should travel, what I should listen to, and what I should read. So where is the most significant or important place for you? Uh, I think this is a great way to end the discussions that you have 
So a place, I, I grew up in New Jersey and I spent my summers heading down to the Jersey shore at the beach and family would uh, always go to the same same spot in the same town, Second Avenue Beach in Bradley Beach, New Jersey. This is the place where like, I just remember being the true version of a kid, uh, you know, running around, playing in the water, building sandcastles and having fun with my dad uh, when he was healthy, going for little runs on the beach, uh, throwing the Frisbee and you know, digging holes. Uh, my dad was like one of these guys who showed up at the beach with like, not like a little plastic shovel but like a, like a contractor shovel like i'm i'm at a construction site and he builds like these, dig these holes that were like six feet deep and the lifeguard would come over and be like you're done fill it in it's too <laughs> dangerous when it came time to f- to think about where my dad would you know have his final resting place it was only logical and so you know he was given the opportunity to like have a funeral for him and bury him he actually had a plot his sister bought him and i was like you know i don't i don't really want to make routine visits to like cemetery uh every year or whenever for the rest of my life i want to go to a place that like i know that me and my dad both loved and so um when he was cremated took one year to sort of hold on to the ashes but brought him you know a year later to bradley beach dug a hole surrounded by really really close you know family and close friends just say and uh got in the hole and said my goodbye six feet deep (laughs) not six feet uh but it was it was it was deep enough uh you know it was deep enough it was a hole that he would have been proud of Mm. put it that way so that's my place. Awesome. And I can see how those, that could be such a special place, but given what you're talking about, you know, the last 10, 50, you know, years or so being not so full of um, those positive memories, but those, those positive memories still existed just as much as the other ones. Those events still were just as real. So I can totally see why that helps you focus on, on those. Your favorite piece of music. So there's a song called Time Machine Invention by Cloud Cult. And it's a good little kind of piece of folk rock music, but the lyrics are incredible. Basically, the gist of the song is, let me tell you about my time machine. You know, it's great, uh, but actually it doesn't really work that well. So I'm kind of doing what I can with it. Uh, But actually, uh, there really isn't a time machine. We're just kind of existing on this machine that goes forward uh and (laughs) you know we just uh we just have to appreciate now there is actually no time machine so it's sort of fibbing uh you know (laughs) and you know that's all that matters is is right now so uh it's the lyrics are much more eloquent than i just spat them out but it's a really really good piece of of music and good piece of art love it we'll um have that in the link below so everyone can listen and your favorite or most impactful book? Uh, so I mentioned um, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I actually have a copy of it that a friend and I have passed back and forth during different times of our lives. I gave it to him after his mother passed. Uh, he gave it back to me after my dad passed. And I, we may end up passing it back and forth going forward. But um, powerful, powerful piece of literature by a Stoic philosopher that sort of reminds us where strength comes from, that emotions are important, but also a function of our experience and to sort of focus on, you know, keeping a level outlook. So I I appreciate that. One other sort of honorable mention that I'll throw in um, is Born to Run, which hopefully (laughs) is kind of like a staple in the bookshelves of you know, most people that are runners, but it, it's actually what got me excited during my bike ride across the country to actually try running very seriously. I read it twice during that bike ride and I was like, this is next. This is what I'm going to go for. 
this ultra running so yeah yeah two fantastic books uh i haven't actually marcus aurelius's meditations is on my bookshelf and i feel it's worth saying here that for those listening and hear the word stoic philosopher and think it means anything to do with stoicism that's completely wrong in fact the stoic philosophers are all about essentially maximizing joy and I'll, I'll leave you with that little teaser but to challenge a commonly a common misperception born to run is i can confirm a book i very much enjoyed and changed the way i thought about running too thank you so much josh um the final question is you know we, we've talked about the, the difficulties you've gone through how you've dealt with them um how you're now you you've got a book which is on um in December of 2020, it'll be available on Amazon. Exciting. So um, we'll obviously, yeah, do check that out as well. Um, Josh, thank you so, so much for your time, for sharing your your thoughts, uh, your experiences, and for being so upfront and insightful as well. I massively appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. I appreciate it. And it's a real pleasure to be able to to join you and to be on the podcast. And um, so thank you for giving me the space to share and to learn and, and listen to you. Thank you.